It was a scary moment. Clearly I survived and it did impact my voice. I couldn't sing for a while and it's recovered and it's returned. It's never been quite the same, but it, it is mostly recovered. And, you know, this was like, this was after my sons had died. This was after my marriage had ended. And I was like, really, really? Now I can't sing. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like it was another loss. And I couldn't, I felt and I was like, I can't, I can't have another loss. I can't lose this thing. Krista Couture refers to herself as a singer, songwriter, storyteller, cyborg. She's an award-winning performer and recording artist, a non-fiction writer, and a broadcaster. She is also proudly Indigenous, mixed Cree and Scandinavian, queer, disabled, and a mom. Krista knows profound heartbreak and shares her journey with a depth that draws you in with humanity. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. In this beautiful conversation, Krista and I chat about her life and navigating identity through grief. Krista shares how she's been introduced in the past, how the meaning of her name, Singing Woman, has been woven into her life, and how her flower leg has so greatly impacted how Krista sees herself and her disability. We talk about what resilience means to Krista and about support, the importance of it, and how differently it can show up in your life at different times. I am deeply honored and incredibly excited for you to hear this conversation today. You may even be able to hear the smile on my face. We'd spoken pre-recording about many things before we began, and I'd mentioned hearing something on a podcast about Krista being introduced in the past by people listing the biggest tragedies in her life as bullet points. And this is where we jump in today. Yeah, I often talk about my grief bio, which is those bullet points, which is that list, those major moments in my life, which is cancer, amputation, death, death, divorce, more cancer. And that's over the last 40 years. I realize as a list, it, it, it's striking. Even one, one of those things, and, you know, each of those has a big story behind it, but it was cancer, bone cancer that I had as a kid, um, the amputation of my left leg above the knee, which was the cure for that cancer. Um, so very lucky, but also a, a kind of loss. And then the death of my first son as a newborn, the death of my second son at 14 months old, and then the end of my marriage after that. And picking up the pieces and moving across the country to try and start over, you know, after it all and, and create something new. And then I got uh, uh, thyroid cancer. So those are, you know, I think we all can look at our life and see those major turning points, be it a loss or a gain, you know, like something that changed in our life and put us in a new direction. And, and that's my list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And depending on the way that you look at it, it's such a tragic list or it's an incredible list because ultimately it's shaped who you are and where you're at and the messages that you can share and the space with which you can hold for other people. Like, oh gosh, (laughs) having read your book and having known a little bit about you and your story in advance, I want to actually start with talking about music. Reason being is because I recognize that music is so laced to your name. Can you elaborate a bit on that for us? Sure. So I have two names and my name is Krista Couture. That's the, my, you know, name I was given at birth was Krista. 
Um, but I also have a traditional name. I am mixed Cree and Scandinavian. And when I was two, um, I was given a, a traditional name, sometimes called a spirit name in ceremony. And after this naming ceremony, the, the elder came out and told my parents that my name was Saini Bay, which means singing woman in Arapaho, which I'm not Arapaho, but we were in his territory and that's the language he spoke. So you work with what you've got. Um, and he told my family, she's going to sing a lot and she's going to talk a lot. And so I grew up being told this story. Oh, Raymond said she's going to sing a lot. She's going to talk a lot. And, you know, when I'd be singing to myself or performing or writing songs that, you know, the, oh, Saini Bay, you're going to sing a lot. You're going to talk a lot. And so I either, you know, grew into that name or it was always true. But it's the name I was called like when I was cherished, you know, like, you know how like Chris, the Faye is my middle name. So Krista Faye is when I was in trouble, of course, as a kid, we all get that. And then Saini Bay was the name that was like, you know, that I was in that moment of being cherished and loved. And so it's always meant so much to me. And it, it's been, it's kind of a guiding principle. Like our traditional names speak to our role in the world, to um, in a way our obligation, like how we're meant to use our gifts to serve our community. And so knowing that I was singing woman always kind of kept me on that path of like, well, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sing and I tell stories. Yeah. I kind of pulled out of that as well, having grown up as a very talkative young girl, (laughs) is that if someone says that they talk a lot or that they're chatty, you almost feel shame associated with that. Yeah. Did you ever experience like just, you know, being talked about as just the chatty girl? And I think that's something that might be like gendered. I feel like as women, it's like, oh, she's just chatty that like Mm -hmm. there's an assumption that it's like filler, that we're not saying anything valuable. We just go off. Um, I know. Yeah. She's like, oh, she just talks a lot. Like it's not worth listening to or something, Um, which of course is not true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, so I think I I think sometimes, yeah, I would feel feel a bit of that self-consciousness of, you know, I think that's true. Anytime we talk about like our gifts, people are going to turn it on you. But the, the talk a lot part, I did always kind of just think, oh, that means I'm just chatty or or like the, the singing part was so clear. I was singing, I was writing songs. And then in my 20s, started recording albums and touring and performing. And then she's going to talk a lot. Like ex- I just thought meant, oh, it is just because I'm chatty and, you know, we'll go off on one when I'm on stage or whatever. But it's been in recent years. And I tell the story in the book that I realized that part is as important, like that part of the teaching that she's going to talk a lot is as important to being Saini Bay, you know, that it's a, still about sharing my story and that writing this book is in a way talking a lot, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the way that we put stories into the world, making podcasts and that there is such value to talking a lot and to being a chatty kid, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really believe that with your story and the things that you've been through, that the ability to talk through them is such, like such a gift. Mm. I mean, yes. I mean, a gift, a gift to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those gifts go in a few ways, but I, I feel very, very lucky that I've always had music and writing, but, you know, recently, but for a long time, it was just through songwriting to have that as an outlet, mm-hmm. to have that as a way that I processed what I was feeling, the way that I shared what I had been through. And, you know, there was songs that I would write, you know, that no one's ever heard that are like pure cathartic, just banging and sobbing on the piano. You know, it's mm-hmm. more like journaling. Mm-hmm. And then there's the songs that I shaped and crafted and recorded and would perform as a means to 
figure out how I wanted to tell my story and Mm -hmm. come to terms with it and understand it. And there's something so powerful, as we know, when you, when you tell your story, when you're empowered to say, this is what happened to me, this is what's true. And what's beautiful about being a touring musician is that I got to do that like every night. There was something in that repetition of every night singing these songs about my losses, about my sons, about cancer and getting up and singing the songs again and again and again. But that kind of helped me get used to it Mm -hmm. in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, you know how like sometimes if you're just like in a car accident, like a fender bender and for the next two weeks, anytime you see a friend, you're like, did I tell you I was in a car accident? Like Mm -hmm. we just like, we're getting used to the story. You know, Mm -hmm. we keep telling it until we kind of, there's a version that fits or doesn't fit. We might want to change later, but it it kind of settles. And I think because I had music and because I had the opportunity to perform, it gave me this, yeah, this outlet and this release and this means of understanding what had happened and how I felt about it. And, you know, that was my thing. That was my thing that I turned to. I mean, it was also my job and my income and all of that, but it was so much more than that. And I think if I'd been, you know, if I was a potter, I just would have had my hands in clay for 10 years, like whatever the thing is, but, but music is, is my thing. Mm-hmm. So there was a, quite a, a pivot when it came to your thyroid and a thyroidectomy. Yeah. So your release, your quote unquote safe haven of singing had a real change. Can you tell us a bit about that story? Yeah. So... I had moved to Toronto from Vancouver, I guess almost six, seven years ago. I was about to record my sixth album, I think, and discovered that I had this massive lump on my thyroid. And I knew that having it removed might impact my voice. And so I kept postponing the surgery. And it was there was like a 50-50% chance that it was cancerous. And and thyroid cancer, I mean, my surgeon at the time, he's like, it's not like big C cancer. It's not, you know, breast cancer, lung cancer, where every day makes a difference, right? It can thyroid cancer can take years to kind of change. Not that it's not a threat, but it's a very different kind of cancer as far as that word and mm-hmm. how scary that word is. But anyway, so we didn't know. It was like it could be, it might not be trying to weigh out that decision. And so I decided to make the album and then I decided to go on one tour. I just really wanted to do one more tour in case this had you know, an impact. And I had the surgery and there were some complications. And I tell the story in the book, my friend calls at the time I was partially decapitated. It was a scary moment. Clearly I survived and it did impact my voice. I couldn't sing for a while and it's recovered and it's returned. It's never been quite the same, but it, it is mostly recovered. And, you know, this was like, this was after my sons had died. This was after my marriage had ended. And I was like, really? Really? Mm -hmm. Now I can't sing? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it was another loss. And I couldn't, I felt, and I was like, I can't, I can't have another loss. I can't lose this thing. And so I was, I was pretty bummed. (laughs) And that pivot, that change meant that I slowed down and stayed in one place for a while because as much as music is my safe haven and as much as it was what kind of kept me going and gave me something to hold on to particularly in the early years of grief when I was really struggling there was ways that I also used it to escape and I needed to and that protected me but I kind of was overproductive like that was my coping strategy Mm -hmm. you know and it was sort of valued like there's some merit because I was making music and touring but 
it was the thing I was doing in a way also to just distract me. And so after the the thyroidectomy and not being able to perform and having to just stay in Toronto and find some other job, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to really kind of slow down and think about, okay, well, what do I do if I'm not making music? And how am I Saini Bay? How am I singing woman if I'm not actually singing? Like this is sort of an identity crisis. But in that time, it gave me what turned out to be a really beautiful opportunity to reflect on that and realize that really the core of what I get out of performing music, at least, is connecting with other people, is the experience of sharing my story, being seen, being heard, hearing other people's stories in response. I mean, there's more that goes on in music, like the physical feeling of singing, and there's lots there. But that connection is so important to me. And it's why I record and perform songs. And so when I realized that, it was like, okay, well, how else can I do that? Like, Mm -hmm. is there another way I can feel that? And that's partly what led to to writing the book. I was like, all right, I guess I'll write the stories down. That makes me wonder a little bit more about the word resilience and what that means to you, because you've had a therapist say to you, resilience sucks. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have feelings about resilience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a resilient person. I am grateful for that resilience. It has carried me through. It's been part of what has carried me through these hard times. But when my therapist said resilience sucks and, you know, he wasn't saying like, it sucks if you're resilient, but what he was speaking to was that you only discover your resilience through suffering you will only find out your capacity to endure by enduring. (laughs) So it it sucks in that you have to experience hardship or sorrow or trauma to find out that you're resilient, to to kind of ignite it or reveal it. And so if someone is resilient, then you know that they've suffered. And so that's why it sucks. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we sometimes use resilience almost as a way to put the onus on an individual to get through something, you know, they're resilient, they'll handle it, they're okay. Rather than like, how do we support each other? What's community care? You know, it's not all on an individual to get through something. And if someone isn't resilient, we like see that as a failing. Like if someone isn't coping well or can't handle it, when really it's like, that should be okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's help you. If you can't handle what's happening to you, let's figure out what you need. And it's not just on you. So I have these mixed feelings because I, I know that my resilience has served me well, but at the same time, you know, ignorance is bliss. I might've rather not know how resilient I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You just said something that made me wonder about support and support from others and what that would look like. So when you are in the depths of your grief, What are some things that others have done for you that really helped lift you? Or at Mm. least have you feel seen and heard and understood in that grief? Yeah, a number of things. And I think that's actually another part of when people look at me and they think, oh, you're so strong, you're so resilient. And what they're not seeing is that I've had a lot of support. And that's it. That's what's made me being, you know, quote unquote, okay, possible (laughs) Mm -hmm. in that I've had friends and family and resources and, you know, able to pay for a therapist and I've always been housed. Like all of these things are part of what makes a person resilient, you know, but as far as like practical things and the ways that I have felt 
supported. I mean, you know, in the early weeks and months, particularly after my sons died, people who just dropped off food without asking or without even ringing the doorbell, just letting me know it was there. The people who just took care of things around me. I mean, I think if you're someone like you're not someone who cooks, but you're someone who can organize and loves a spreadsheet, like be the one to organize the food train, you know, I think people just stepping in to do something, to do the laundry for me, bring food, like the things that can feel really daunting when you're weighed down by sorrow. And the simple messages, I mean, the things that were, when I think about the, you know, the last 10 years or the more acute times, but like the most powerful ways that people checked in were often the ones that were like a year later, two years later, because there's so much is often a lot of, you know, an outpouring of support. Like when it comes to the death of someone, you know, everyone in your family or community knows it's happened Mm -hmm. and they like step in and they reach out and, and, you know, they send you flowers or whatever. Mm -hmm. But a year later, a lot of those people don't remember the date or, you know, have their own lives full of things. And so what was most meaningful to me were the people who put it in their calendar and send me a message to this day. I have one friend in particular who will send me a message when it's coming up to both of my son's birthdays say, I'm thinking about you. I remember when you were pregnant and remember his blue eyes, like, Mm -hmm. and just let me know that she remembers. I, you know, like we were saying, being seen and being heard is a powerful need we all have. And it's a really beautiful feeling when you, when you get it right. And so being remembered and being remembered and considered in that the person just knew that I was having a hard time. They weren't just texting to say, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. They already knew it was going to be hard. (laughs) So the message is like, hey, I'm thinking about you today. This is what I'm thinking about. So yeah, supporting, like it can take different shapes. I think people should do the thing that comes easy to them. You know, if it's organizing, if it's cooking, if it's cleaning. And I know we can feel like we don't know what to say and we don't want to risk like doing the wrong thing. And that's real. And it depends on the friendship. But I think it's actually a lesser risk to just like do the thing and say like, if this is totally not okay, let me know. I won't do it again. Or rather, because when people would ask me like, if you need anything, let me know. I was like, I couldn't compute, Mm -hmm. right? It's like too big of an ask already. (laughs) And and that's partly like a skill over time that I've developed of like how to ask for things. But again, when you're in shock or you're overwhelmed, you just can't say, oh, do you know what would be useful? Like X, Y. Mm -hmm. Um, So do the thing you know, with some openness, with no expectation of a response (laughs) and then check in, make some notes to like, keep it in mind. How's it going to be five years from now? You know, how's it going to be on the anniversaries of these events? Yeah. That actually segues really beautifully into something else I was keen on asking you. When people will say to you, because they often don't know what to say when they understand what you've been through, whether it's just happened or whether they hear your story and they'll say to you, there's always hope. To which you reply, there's often hope. (laughs) So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I used to have this shtick on stage where I would say that I was an advocate for hopelessness. (laughs) But it's not because, (laughs) it kind of relates to resilience. It's not because I want you to feel hopeless. But if you do, like if there's genuinely despair Mm -hmm. in your life, I want it to be okay for us to just be present with that. I want to accept that it's hard. And when people say there's always hope, they're trying to project a future. They're trying to take you out of that present moment, usually out of their own discomfort. And for sure, there's times where it makes sense to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. But 
there are times that are genuinely hopeless and to call it anything else is a disservice, you know, to the experience. And I think in particular, if you're, if you're losing someone or if someone is really sick, like there might not be hope. You might need to just say, actually, this is hopeless and it's heartbreaking. So now like, how do we, how do we just sit with that and care for that rather than, you know, tell a story about what else it could be. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot over to your flower leg. Tell us about how that helped you understand your identity and your disability. Yeah, the flower leg. I love. Yeah. I love the flower leg. I love to talk about the flower leg. <laughs> She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's my favorite accessory. Yeah. Goes with everything. So, I mean, I was 13 when my left leg was amputated above the knee. I'll be 43 this year, so it's like that's almost 30 years as an amputee. And in my 20s, like I I did, tried to always keep that hidden sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, but like I had a foam cover on the leg that was sort of the shape of a leg and I always wore pants and, and a lot of people didn't know it about me. didn't know that I only had one leg. And seven years ago or so, I tried out this special kind of knee. It's a microprocessor knee. Um, there was no way I was going to be able to afford it, but I just wanted to try it. It was supposed to be amazing. And I posted a photo on Facebook after having this knee for a month saying, I just tried out this fancy knee. I have to return it. But this is how it was incredible. I got to go downstairs, step over step for the first time. And all of these people chimed in. I think some people who didn't even know I'd only one leg, but all these people saying like, wow, like you have to give the leg back. Like, why do you have to give it back? And, you know, how can we get you this knee? And that sounds amazing. And I didn't even know you only have one leg. And, and this idea came out, this, I'm telling you the long version of this, but this idea came out I love it. <laughs> to crowdfund the knee. Mm -hmm. And my friend Susan, who plays a big part in the book, is kind of spearheaded this crowdfunding campaign. And we raised $25,000 to buy this fancy knee, this incredible knee that changed my life. I sometimes call it the knee that folk music built because most of the donations, a lot of them came from people within the folk community. And this came, you know, this was a couple years after my sons died. And I think I realized it gave people an opportunity. We were talking about support. It gave kind of those more peripheral people to do something. You know, the people who have always wanted to help but weren't close enough to me, either geographically or personally, to drop off a meal. And it was like, oh, but they can they can put some money towards the thing and it's going to make a difference. And no, it doesn't fix like the grief for my sons, but it supports me. It helps mm -hmm. me. And so I got this knee and I thought, how do I show my gratitude for this, that all of these people stepped in to buy this for me? And it seemed like covering it up and putting pants on just like wasn't going to do it justice. And so I'd seen someone else with a, a prosthetic leg that was hand painted with flowers, went into my clinic and said, what can we do that's like this? And they suggested laminating a fabric onto the shelves. It's like a very simple technique, but you can choose any fabric you want. I picked this floral linen, it's an upholstery fabric actually mm -hmm. that I love and, and chose that around the legs so that it looks like it's this kind of hand painted. It looks sort of vintage. And for the first time in my adult life, suddenly had this very visible disability because I was not only like making it visible. I was like pointing a neon sign to it with these mm -hmm. gorgeous flowers. And while I, you know, thought I was doing this kind of as like a, an expression of the, receiving this gift and I was trying something, you know, that felt a little uncomfortable, but I was excited about because, you know, these other amputees that I'd seen pictures of, like, I thought it looked beautiful. Could I rock this flower leg? 
stepped into the world with this leg, I did not anticipate how much it would transform how I see myself, how I see my disability, how others see my disability. You know, in the past, if people noticed how I was walking on stairs or maybe that my gait is a little different and they would say, oh, are you hurt? And I'd say, no, I only have one leg. And then the response was always like, oh, oh God, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry I asked. I was like, it's okay. Like, I don't make it, you know, it's fine. I'm not hurt. <laughs> um, but now with the flower leg, you know, people were coming up to me saying, wow, like, how did that get made? And that's so beautiful. And, and can I look? And is it weird that I want to ask you about this? And there was an excitement mm -hmm. about this difference that I have. And so I started to think about myself that way. I was like, oh, maybe this is a really cool thing about me. Maybe I can love that I only have one leg. Maybe this is amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not hiding it and I'm celebrating it. And what is it about my disability that I feel good about or that I appreciate or what have I learned from it? Like it just shifted so much about my perspective and because granted, like there's so much out there that tells us disabled bodies are, are not worth celebrating mm -hmm. <laughs> and me hiding it. That's not like an idea I came up with myself. There's so much around us that would make a person feel like they should hide their disability. But because of this very sort of daily interactions with people about the flower leg, I was getting all of these ideas and input of like, okay, this is cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was unexpected. That's not what I was going for, but I'm so glad it happened. Yeah. Totally. I love, I even wrote down support and like circled it with the word community because when I asked you about support and how others have supported you in the past, what a beautiful collective way for so many people to support you with your knee. Yeah. Like, and the community that's surrounding you. I, I just like, my heart just bursts for that. I know. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the thing is people do want to help. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes if you can say, this is how you can help me, people will jump on the opportunity. Yes. And for a lot of people, money is a way they can do it. I mean, what was amazing with the knee raiser, like there were some people, you know, like an uncle who put in a thousand dollars and, you know, but a lot of people, a lot of artists were putting in $20. Some mm -hmm. people did 10. It was all they could do, but it was so moving mm -hmm. because they wanted to contribute and it adds up. Right. And so I think that kind of, um, that kind of support, yeah, makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when do you feel most like yourself? Most like myself, you know, when do I feel most like myself on stage for sure singing, but even just speaking into a microphone, you know, I just like, I like being on stage. Mm -hmm. I like having the mic <laughs> and there are times certainly in performance where it's like the stars align, you know, and everything feels right. And I feel like I'm myself, I'm just glowing in the world. I feel like myself, most like myself when I'm with my daughter, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's three and a half now, but those times when it would be like just the two of us, you know, breastfeeding, just lying down together, like yeah. that is a whole world where I, I am everything I need to be and can be. So for sure with, with her as well. Tell us about her name. <laughs> her name is Sona Wasiao. And um, when I named her Sona, a lot of people thought I was relating it to music, like, mm. like the root S-O-N, you know, sonata or sonogram. Or, and I hadn't thought of that, but I love that. <laughs> um, so I, it's a name I had read somewhere and, and that I love, Sona. But it's nice that it sounds like song. And uh, her middle name, Wasiao, is a Cree word. And when I was pregnant, 
I mean, it's interesting my all my problems with the word hope, but I was speaking to a, a language keeper. I don't speak Cree, I have a few words, but and I was saying, you know, I'd I'd like to give this baby a name that speaks to hope. <laughs> because for me to after the losses of my sons, to even think about trying to have a third baby, you know, to hope for conceiving, carrying to term, having a live birth, having a healthy baby, like it was a huge step for me to be hopeful, to be open to possibility, including the possibility of more loss, but also the possibility of, you know, a positive outcome. And so I was talking to them about that and they said, well, there's not really a Cree word for hope. Like that's not really how the language works, but they were like, there is the word wasiao and that means a light is coming. It could be sunlight coming through the window. It could be flicking on a light switch, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it means a light is coming and maybe that could, that could feel right. And I loved that because of course she is this bright, bright, bright light in my life. And so yeah, Wasiao uh, speaks to that. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. Krista, I have my three safe haven style questions. You ready? I'm ready. What are you most proud of? I will tell you in this moment what I am most proud of. Okay. I am so proud of my book because mm-hmm. it was a huge task to write the book, whether it's like a good book or not. I mean, I hope that it's doing its work out in the world, but getting it done is something that I am proud of. I am proud of the music that I've made over the years. I released my seventh album last year. It's my first piano-based album. I'm proud of that. And I'd say I'm proud of my daughter. It's a, it's a funny because of course, like she is her own person mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, doing my best to, to help her be that person. So I can't take all the credit but I'm proud of us for getting here and everything that brought me here and that I got through enough of it that I could be open to having her and welcoming her. And I'm proud of trying something, trying something new. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What would you like to be known for? Mm. My way with words, ideally. Yeah, that's a great (laughs) answer. You are great with words. (laughs) And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? Hmm. The message that I share, I think through all of my work, whether it's music, whether it's the book, is you're not alone. Where can people find you online? KristaCouture.com. It's Krista with a C-H. And Instagram, you know, Twitter, Facebook, mostly just Instagram, Spotify, Bandcamp, YouTube, like all the places, Krista Couture. <laughs> and just one last note, because I'm a, I'm a bookie. I love my books. This has got to be one of the most beautiful books I've ever held. Your cover art, the actual inside of the book where it's yellow flowers on the inside, like it's Gorgeous. Yes. Diane Robertson, okay, is an incredible designer. I was so blessed to have her work on this book. There's beautiful details mm-hmm. about how the patterns line up. And the, the floral pattern on the front is the fabric from my leg, which she surprised oh. me with. She actually ordered the fabric online and photographed it on her front lawn in the sun because <laughs> it was the best light and then did the cutout with his letters. But I, I love it because it sort of feels like it's almost like it's a photo of me. Mm-hmm. It's not. <laughs> but because it's uh, the flowers, it so ties into into what I look like and who I am. Mm-hmm. But I know that the design 
It's beautiful. I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah, I, I really do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. It means the world. Thank you. My pleasure. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? Oh, my heart. Krista, thank you so much for being a part of my passion project and for jumping in to share your time with my listeners and I here on The Safe Haven. You are such a gift and I will forever hold your book and this conversation close to my heart. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. For more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. And I will talk to you next week.